on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. We are here today welcoming Jeff Hodgson, and Jeff's going to be talking to us about a number of things, including his new book, Is There a Future for Heterodox Economics? And in the Journal of Economic Issues, just coming out in September 2021. There's some information and articles about that book as well. So welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Eric. So we'll go ahead and get started. First question we have on your new book, Is There a Future for Heterodox Economics? You focus a lot on the issue of it's been unable to define maybe a reason for its existence. And then you talk about a lot about alternative behavioral assumptions, the alternatives to max utility, can you give us some more about this? Are you and how you see the future for heterodox in this context? Okay, thanks for the question. There's a problem, this problem of lack of agreement on what heterodoxy means and by inverse what orthodoxy means. I outlined some several major attempts to define heterodoxy, one by Fred Lee in his works, another one by Tony Lawson, and I mentioned a few other people. But the fact is, they disagree. Their, their positions are, are substantially different. There's some overlap. They agree on the importance of critical realism, but there's other issues, there's differences. Um, for example, Lawson emphasizes mathematics, or the, the mathematics in defining the nature of orthodoxy, much more than Lee does, for example. So this is a problem that needs sorting if heterodox economists are going to organize together. If they're not going to organize together, it's less urgent. But if you're going to have a heterodox associations, you need some notion what heterodoxy means. So another problem is that the theoretical positions that people take on different issues are entangled, and unavoidably so, with ideological positions. I'm not a value-free social science person. It's impossible to separate these two things. Ideology and theory are always entangled in several different ways and often subtle ways. And for example, your ideology uh, focuses you on particular issues. If you want to, if you're interested in pro-market policies, you're going to address how markets work and so on and so forth. So these two things interact in the social sciences and they always will do, and you cannot completely separate them, but they're not the same thing. If it's the same thing, then we might as well just be political scientists and advocate policy. We're also analysts, we're scientists, and there's some discussion about the nature of the world, the economic world and the social world, which goes cuts across different ideological views. Otherwise, we cannot claim to be scientific or involved in some way in trying to understand social reality. And I think these two things are entangled also with the problem of heterodoxy. And I mean, when I was at Cambridge, I, I was at Cambridge for just slightly over six years in the 90s. Some people, not all people, some people said this is left-wing economics, heterodoxy is left-wing economics. So they defined it in terms of a political position. Now, that's one option. 
to say heterodoxy is left-wing economics, we have to then define more clearly what left-wing means, but that would then be opposed to something else. But there's problems with this in that we have leftists amongst mainstream economists, like Kenneth Arrow, for example. Kenneth Arrow was a socialist, but he advocated neoclassical methods. And there's many other examples, like Oscar Langer and people like that. So the problem then is the people involved, the drawing of lines of who's orthodox and who's heterodox changes if we use that criterion. It's an option, okay? But most attempts to define heterodox economics don't use ideology. They use other criteria. The two examples of Lawson and Lee I mentioned are cases in point. Now, I don't think that this problem is easily resolved. I think, basically, we have to admit there's a disagreement on the nature of what orthodoxy is and there's disagreement on the nature of heterodoxy. And we can discuss that, but we ain't going to solve this quickly. What I do in the book is say, well, there is a simple solution, and the simple solution is to say that mainstream or orthodoxy, more accurately, is max U. It's focusing on utility maximization. And I present evidence in the book that contrary to uh, people like David Collender, who's done work on this, it isn't going away. And I also discuss uh, behavioral economics, which is an important development. There's the Simon version, the old behavioral economics, and there's a new version called the new behavioral economics. And they're, they're different. The substantially different. If you focus on the new behavioral economics, utility maximization is still there in the sense that they recognize deviations from it, but try and explain things ultimately in terms of some utility functional preferences with caveats about uh, learning, caveats about information flows, errors, mistakes, and so on. So it's more sophisticated than a narrow version of MaxU, but it's nevertheless focusing on MaxU. Now, if you take those points together, then we have a defining criteria which is dominant within orthodoxy, or, or let's say dominant within most leading, most prestigious departments of economics globally, particularly in the English-speaking world. So that is a possible criterion, but I also predict in the book that it won't be popular. And I suggest the reason it won't be popular is because that means abandoning the actual ideological issues which are lingering around the background, off-site to the sides, in this discussion about what heterodoxy means, because it would mean including people as heterodox, like Deirdre McCloskey and Vernon Smith, because they're critical of Maxume. Vernon Smith has shifted his position. Deirdre McCloskey is very eloquent about the limitations of Maxume. I think she actually coined the term Maxume. Both of those persons I mentioned, Deirdre and uh, Smith, are members of the Montpellerin Society, which are sort of libertarian liberals, which people would not describe as left-wing. So we've got anomalies here. And the left-wing, as I mentioned earlier, like Arrow and Langer, would be also a Max U. So they would be orthodox by this criteria. So the ideological split becomes a, more complicated in this way. So I think this we need to tease out what the issues are. Is it the ideology? Is it the max U? Is it the use of mathematics? And except there's differences of view on this, and that there's a difficulty of defining heterodoxy, 
Andrew Mearman, who I mentioned to finish on answer your question, has, has argued we shouldn't have definitions. In other words, he says we can't be can't do this. I think the reasons he gives for abandoning the task of de- defining heterodoxy are really unpersuasive. He says it's because it's complex and changing, but species are complex and changing. We still define them. We have mammals, reptiles, and so on. They're all complex and changing, but we don't abandon definitions. And also, if we're to organize as heterodox economists, then we have to decide who's in and who's out. Who are we inviting? Who are we not inviting? There's people promoting lists of heterodox journals or economics or business departments which are friendly to heterodox economists. Well, that involves a a dualism in the world where you're having heterodox on one side and non-heterodox on the other side. So it's unavoidable that we actually try and understand what this means. And it means by implications, understanding what orthodoxy means. So that's the argument in the book. And the solutions aren't simple. I just think we need to be aware of the problem. So leading on to that, as I mentioned in the September 2021 JEI, there were a number of articles about your book and one of them by John Henry, who we should acknowledge passed away last year. He wrote a comment about he felt you were trying to move heterodoxy in a more conservative direction. What do you make of that? I mean, is that a misreading of what you're trying to do or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've been voting in elections in the UK for over 50 years, and I've never in my life voted conservative. I've voted different things, but I've never voted conservative. I regard in uh, UK politics and also US politics, the people describe themselves as conservative as really politically backward and basing their views on a kind of economics which is really quite crude. And and to say it's classical economics is to overflatter it because Smith was much more sophisticated. I'm talking about Adam Smith rather than Vernon Smith now. Adam Smith was much more sophisticated in terms of understanding of markets and the role of the state than a lot of these people are. I'm no way conservative. and I regard myself as, as on the left. I'm, I'm not left in the sense I want to nationalize everything. That's the difference I have with a lot of the left. Um, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn and these prominent left-wing figures very much prioritize common ownership at the national level. Right? They, they say under democratic control, whatever that means, however that works. That's not my priority, but my priority is left-wing concerns like economic equality, or not exact quality, but less inequality, as Piketty and others have, have argued for. That's one of, one of my major concerns about the current world. I'm concerned about climate change. I'm concerned about human liberty. I'm concerned about challenges to democracy. I am not a conservative. Yeah. Obviously, you've talked a lot about political ideology and the relationship between the academic enterprise. I'm curious what you think Should institutional economists be more explicit about thinking about that? I mean, there's always this assumption that there's a left-leaning part of this, but should we think more about that more explicitly? We don't seem to talk about it as much as I would expect, perhaps. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not quite sure how best to answer it. And when I got in contact with institutional economics, my my views developed through time. In the 70s, I was a Marxist. I was a critical Marxist. I was doing saying things that people didn't like about Marxism. I wrote an article critical of the falling red profit theory, but I was still in the analytical neck of the woods, and I would call myself a Marxist at the time. By the 80s, though, I was, I was shifting, and, and 
I got interested in institutional economics for that reason. I wanted to look, find something different from Marxism, which is very much prominent amongst heterodoxy and still is in Europe. And I was interested in Keynesianism, but Keynesianism was more macro concerned. And I, my interests more and more on the micro side, on uh, human behavior and how we understand economic agents in economic systems. And therefore, I found Veblen, and I started reading Veblen. I started to read the Journal of Economic Issues in late 70s, early 80s. And at time, the reputation of the JEI and AFI, Association for Evolution Economics, was that these people wanted to do a deal with capitalism, right? So people, the Marxists would say, these JEI people, these AFI people want to do a deal with capitalism. We're the true socialists. That was the reputation then, but I think that's become more complicated, and I think it wouldn't do any harm to discuss it. I noticed that some supporters of MMT, I count myself as a a critical supporter of MMT-type theory, modern monetary theory. Some of them are backing Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and Bernie Sanders in the US. That's fine, that's their right to do it, but I would like to discuss how that relates to the, the socialist politics that those two figures Thing. And I think we should discuss this and, and be open about it and avoid simply assuming that because someone doesn't agree uh, politically with something that they're not no longer useful analytically. I think, I think that's, a, that's a big mistake. For example, and take an extreme case, I don't agree with Hayek politically. In my recent book, Liberal Solidarity, there's a lot criticizing Hayek. I accept things, some of the important things he said particularly the role of knowledge in the economy, but a lot of his policy positions and analytical stances, I disagree with that, outline that at length in the book. But, I mean, I don't simply dismiss Hayek because I don't like his politics. We should be able to discuss that. Unfortunately, that's possible. I mean, the, the JEI has published articles which discuss Hayek in a critical but reflective and balanced way. And that, that's a good way of going on. And why not? It helps. But I think Gunnar Myrdal emphasized this point, and he said it's very important to make our values explicit as well as doing the analysis. Doing the analysis is our scientific duty and as social scientists, but also we say, well, look, I come from this, this political position. I, I believe in these values. Make them explicit. I mean, don't hide them or pretend that we can separate these two things completely. We can't. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, thank you. Also in that same issue, Jason Potts talks about thinking about the digital economy and, and that's a good way for institutionalists to move. What's your sense of that as a fruitful direction? I agree with Jason. I'm not, I'm not sure where this, where it would lead or whether it has much traction. The work that Jason's doing is very interesting. It's, I think, outside an economics department, and he's gathered a team of, around him in, in Australia, which are doing very interesting work. I think that, standing back a bit from it, I, I think the problem, the paradigm shift that we're trying to push along gradually within economics is to move away from a physics-based metaphor, as Morosky has shown, and stop talking about material stuff all the time and give more emphasis to information and knowledge. And I think that's a crucial step that we have to make. People have alerted us to this problem for a long time. Kenneth Boulding used to make this kind of point. This is our agenda. It's not easy, and it's, it won't be done quickly. 
I think contributions like Jason Potts and his co-authors, which look at the digital economy and look at things like Bitcoin and digital currencies and digital contracts and all these things are not only very intrinsically interesting, they're also important and they're also signaling the role of information and information assets in a modern economy, which is relevant to the change in economics I just talked about. Yeah, thank you. And obviously, we're going to ask all of our listeners to read that JAI issue to get more into the nuances and details. But one thing that was brought up by Lynn Chester was the idea, you know, she felt you were just looking for the evidence to confirm what you wanted to say. I'm just curious how you'd respond to that uh, comment from her. I think one of the part of your training as a scientist is not to just look for confirmatory evidence, is to look for things which might contradict it. And that's a kind of Popperian habit, loosely uh, described as Popperian, which which we try and cultivate in everyone. But psychologically, we know it's difficult, right? So we we probably all err in the direction of saying looking for the right evidence that confirms. But we also have to do the other thing, and I hope I've done that. And I'll give an example where maybe I have done that. That is, I used to quote Colander. David Collender, who's a good friend of mine, on his excellent work on surveying the nature of economics and how it's changed through time. He made the point that the neoclassical label, he said, is no longer relevant, it's dead, and economics is changing in these various ways. I thought this was a good argument. Um, I'm talking about 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago when it started to appear. I, Tony Lawson, friend of another friend of mine, he also thought it was a good argument. He used it in his work. And then I began to wonder. I looked at the evidence. I did a JSTOR search, which is reported in the book on heterodox economics. And I wrote that simply as a result of a free inquiry of what's going on. I and mean, whatever, I didn't, couldn't predict in advance how the figures would come out. But the way the figures came out, they strikingly refuted my previous position. Okay. I was worrying about it, but I got the evidence and they refuted my previous position. That, for me, was quite decisive. It changed my view. I didn't disrupt the argument in the book, but it became part of the argument in the book. Hopefully, I, I accept you know, Lynn's warning that we shouldn't always have confirmation bias, but hopefully we do look for other things. I've changed my mind on lots of things, by the way, uh, through time. I mentioned my, my change of mind regarding Marxism in the late 70s, early 80s. I've since then changed my mind on lots of things, um, particularly for philosophical methods and philosophical issues and, and so on. So uh, hopefully I, am, I would be flexible and responsive to evidence. Right. I think we've sort of touched on this already, but you've identified Max Yu as part of the orthodox uh, or neoclassical economics. You talked somewhat already about behavioral economics, especially the new behavioral economics, some of the Nobel Prizes associated with that. And I, I just want to kind of dig into that a little more about how you see that as sort of more of a continuation of orthodoxy versus a true break in, in a heterodox tradition. Oh, well, it's very interesting. It's interesting as a, in a sort of sociology of science way that Herbert Simon gets the Nobel Prize, I think in the late 70s, if I remember correctly. So he gets a Nobel Prize. He's a major figure. He's a kind of heterodox figure, multidisciplinary, a great polymath in psychology and administrative behavior. His great book, on, which is influencing management and so on. Organization science, great influence. 
And he gets the Nobel Prize in Economics, uh, well-deserved. But I, at the time, I, I, was, I was reading Herbert Simon at the time. This is Herbert Simon's one reason why I got interested in micro, because there were challenges to the standard micro model. Another person, which is not so much mentioned these days, but someone, Harvey Liebenstein, you know, ex-inefficiency, and all that stuff was going around. And I was also interested that that was, incidentally, that that was not taken up within Marxism. Instead, you had this analytical Marxism, which is adopting the Marxist thing. Mm. Now, the striking thing was that economists didn't ride on the Simon bandwagon, the Simon version of behavioral economics, even after he got the Nobel Prize. They were inter- at the time, in the early 80s, there was a surge of game theory and different questions arising. And I remember talking to economists, why don't you read Herbert Simon? Why didn't you use this? Why didn't you take this into account? And, and they didn't. They wanted to stick in their comfort zone, and their comfort zone was largely with utility maximization. So when other people, I mean, clever people like Colin Kammerer and these other people, the new behavioral economists came along, they sort of reconciled the two positions. They sort of looked back at Simon and said, he was great, and he told us many things, and we've got these anomalies that we have to deal with, and we can deal with this by our modified Max U approach. As you know, that's new behavioral economics. And then it takes off. Right? So telling you something about the, the sociology of a science here, that there's orthodoxies within science which are difficult to dislodge and challenge. And that's also a lesson for critics of that orthodoxy. And they don't change. And this is, again, confirmed about what I talked about a minute ago, about the evidence that I unearthed to support the idea that Colander was wrong in saying that these things were going away. They're not. And I think the history, the, I mean, if you use behavioral, the new behavioral economics as a case study, as several people have, and S.T. Moore and Sent and other people have done work on this, it shows that there's this adjustment to the consensus within it, and there's a, only a limited challenge to that called heterodoxy. Orthodoxy, I beg your pardon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Kind of turning to a more of a historical question, I guess. I don't know. I guess my sense is that Cambridge, Keynes, and some of those, I know there's a famous letter between Keynes and Commons, but and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems like there wasn't a ton of interaction between what was going on in England, what was going on in the United States, maybe Veblen, Commons, Hamilton, etc. Is that just because of the times and the way communication was at that time, or do you think there was something else going on, or maybe why they didn't communicate more? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, again, it's a difficult to get a clear answer or an, or an answer with certainty. We can speculate. I worried about this lack of contact. As Bernard Shaw says, we're divided by a common language, but we do have a common language. <laughs> <laughs> why didn't Keynes read Commons, and why why weren't, wasn't the citations uh, the, uh, the other way across the Atlantic as well? There were limited numbers, as, as you've just mentioned, but relatively few, except for the issue of Keynes. So Keynes did. Uh, transfer. I mean, it became a Samuelson version of Keynesian economics, which many Keynesians would disagree with for good reason. But it nevertheless, it took the English-speaking world by storm and also other countries too. So Keynes is an exception. The Keynes UK to the US did work, but there's very little influence of, say, Commons or Veblen or other people the other way, that's from the US to the UK or other European countries. 
it's much more recently, but um, historically that's been a problem. I think part of it is building up schools of thought. There's a kind of critical mass. Uh, Keynes said the right things at the right time, said them brilliantly, he made his own contribution. I don't want to underestimate, but he said it at the right time. He said it at a point where a mass depression followed by a war which required public spending, right? and the wars required public spending. So people were knocked on the head bell by the need for war, and that legitimations of public spending were the appropriate question to look at for the moment. And that became the orthodoxy in its uh, modified form after the end of the Second World War. Institutional ideas have not penetrated in the same way from US to the UK. And look for traces of it. There's a trace of it in Joan Robinson's work, when she briefly mentions, I think it's in her book on economic philosophy, that Clarence Ayres and technological drivers of change. Very briefly, but I, mean, I was at Cambridge for a while and no discussion of Ayres. And I, in fact, I blow my own trumpet a bit. It was people like me who were promoting the importance of people like Babylon and Commons in that context. Unfortunately, I think the interest in the original American institutionalists in Europe generally is now much higher, not just because of me, but several people made the same point. And that's a good thing. So I think the communication channels are more open than they were 50 years ago. There's institutional insularity. A lot of sort of jokes about Cambridge, about just citing each other's work. One of the complaints I would have against Keynes is that his failure to read the German historical school. And this is contrast to Marshall, because Marshall read, he read German and he read, he actually studied in Germany, he read the German historical school. And so, but there's a language problem there as well. I think the world is now more open to the interchange of ideas, but we still have this issue, it's unavoidable, of critical masses of thinking, institutionalized inquiry. It's unavoidable. It's the way science works. Thank you. Yeah, that makes sense. So I wanted to ask you, uh, Professor Waller gave the 2021 Jay Foster Fag lecture. He talked about how he felt maybe you had moved away from your focus on alternative behavioral assumptions work and more of a commons approach. And I guess by that he might mean institutional reforms or something. But I mean, do you agree with this assessment? Maybe you're doing both these things. now. I don't know. But what, what's your sense of what his comment meant? Um, probably a little bit of a could be accused of being an intellectual wanderer because I, I, I don't stick at the same thing. I, I move around a bit. I've already remarked about my early interest in Veblen and I found him captivating because he had a psychology and he had an alternative way of thinking about things built on the psychology of William James and it resonated with Dewey and other people working at that time. For me, he was a, a great inspiration and I read other people. I read Commons and uh, Hamilton and a lot of the early institutionalists. And Commons struck me as having great intuition, but less precision in the terms of expressing his ideas and not the command of theory and philosophical underpinnings that Veblen had. Well, what's striking about Veblen in comparison to Commons is that Veblen has his astute throw away philosophical remarks. Morosky notes this in his work too, that Veblen is onto this issue about physical metaphors 
way before anybody else who was going on, but Babylon was pointing it out and said, you people are using metaphors from physics, and I suggest you rethink this. And he was saying that 120 years ago, okay? And Morosky rightly praises Babylon for that. You don't find the same thing in commons. But what you do find in commons is a set of insights based on strong intuitions about, for example, the role of law in the economy. And I think Commons has got more to say about the role of law in the economy, much more than Veblen. There's a, there's a bit in Veblen about the nature of the corporation and so on, but there's much more in Commons. So my oscillations between Veblen and Commons are not so much because I'm saying, oh, Veblen down, Commons up, Commons down. What I'm saying is, at the moment, I'm interested in the role of law in the economy, and I'm writing about it, as I did, for example, in my Conceptualizing Capitalism book, and I'm quoting commons, because I find in commons more useful. And a lot of what's striking is a number of people have been strongly influenced by commons, particularly the 1924 book. Herbert Simon was, Eleanor Ostrom was, Oliver Williamson was, and I, there's several others, sort of leading figures, including Nobel laureates, were influenced by commons. So commons won't go away. It's still important. So I guess Bill is picking up my shifts of interest, but I'm not moving away from my dedication to the issue of motivation. In fact, I've written a, a bit on that recently on, on moral motivation. And I'm also writing another book on economic history where I talk about why people change, why people innovate, why they look for solutions. And it's very Blanian. I, I think so anyway. It's, I quote Veblen and use him as a masthead on several occasions. So I'm still enamored by both of them. But I think we have to go beyond. We have to learn from modern work in psychology and we have to learn from modern evolutionary theory. Veblen pr promoted evolutionary theory, but evolutionary theory circa 1900 is very different from evolutionary theory circa 2021. Thanks for the note, Bill, but I would explain it slightly differently. Sure, that yeah. makes sense, yeah. Two last questions kind of looking forward. One is, given your interest in the psychology, the human motivation issues, who would you point to kind of who's doing some really critical work in this area? Are there a couple of names you might have for us? I think it really depends. I mean, within economics, there's relatively few people. He doesn't need a push from me, but I, I would nevertheless give him one, and that would be Amartya Sen. I think his criticisms of the rational actor model really quite outstanding, along with Herbert Simon, who was also a Nobel laureate as well. People like that are really old to offer, but of course Amartya Sen's still with us, he's still producing stuff, so as a living economist, I very much promote. There's also an interesting turn with Vernon Smith, as I mentioned earlier. He's looking at new ways of thinking about it. And actually, he admitted to me that he has having difficulty publishing some of his stuff in the top journals because they, they don't have Maxio models in them. It'd be interesting to what way he turns on it, because he has this history of experimental economics, and that's led him to actually reflect critically on the orthodox paradigm, as I would define it, and that's very interesting. Now, outside that, I think I would pick an eclectic number of people that are working on different things. And no one strongly comes to mind. I'm interested to, to look at developments in psychology, in philosophy of biology, and so on. There's some very interesting work. Complexity theory as well also is, is producing some interesting stuff. But I think, I think it has to escape from its generalities and get more focus on specifics. 
really looking forward here. I mean, what, what do you think in 10 or 20 years, heterodox, but also specifically your institutional economics is going to look like? I mean, we're seeing interesting resurgences like Japan has been producing some work on commons, other areas on different thinkers. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, I know you put forward some ideas in your book about what you think should happen. Do you have any sense of where we might be heading over the next couple of decades? It's very difficult to predict. I mean, there's a number of factors which are unavoidable. Okay? One is globalization of academic life. And globalization means currently, currently it means American dominance, okay? for good or bad. There's a lot of good stuff produced in America and there's stuff that we don't like. Okay, But a lot of the top sciences generally, not just social sciences, uh, the top stuff being done in the sciences is from the United States. Now, is that going to be challenged? To be honest, I doubt it. I mean, China is China is growing rapidly, now the biggest economy in the world, nearly the biggest economy in the world. In perhaps the natural sciences, it may, the physical sciences, natural sciences, it may have some cutting edge. I think it's way behind in the social sciences, partly because of the education system, the lack of freedom of expression and so on. There's other reasons too. So I don't think there's a clear rival to American dominance. So that means that what happens will depend to a large degree what happens in the States. One of the differences I observe, and I may be wrong, this is just anecdotal and based on sort of casual observation, is that there's much less interest in interdisciplinary work in the States than there is in Europe. I'm talking about Europe generally, including the UK and continental Europe. For example, anecdotal evidence piece number one would be the journal I ran, which is the Journal of Institutional Economics, which includes old and original institutions as well as new institutional stuff and Austrian stuff and other stuff. It's quite an open journal. We have contributions from sociologists, philosophers, political scientists, and so on, um, management scholars as well, legal scholars. That interdisciplinarity has less attraction in the US. There's an upside and downside to that. And one is it means that American academia is more focused and more specialist. So they push the interdisciplinarity to the side, which is difficult and less focused and more problematic and expensive in terms of time to deal with and produce people who are very good specialists. And that's one of the reasons why these states performs very well in the scientific league tables. But innovate, as we all know, innovation requires combination. So it's really a toss-up between, crudely putting it, US specialization and European combination as to what will happen. Um, In Europe, the language barriers are still relevant in terms of scientific discourse. I mean, there's no problem speaking English at most conferences in continental Europe. Most people will understand most of it, but it's still an issue in terms of fluency of writing, getting published, and so on. Those barriers are still there. So really, it depends what happens in the US and whether this interdisciplinary research can become possible. Because I think the silo effect, disciplines getting stuck in silos, is really a big problem. And with economics... I would say now that economics has become professionalized for about 100 in the United States for about 130 years. The modern style university where research was a crucial component 
began to get take off in the States from the 1890s onwards. And that coincides with the rise of neoclassical hegemony in economics. Thomas Kuhn says in his Structure of Scientific Revolutions, he says that once you get professionalization, you get locked in to standard ways of thinking, and that becomes the normal science, and it becomes therefore difficult to dislodge. So dislodging that, I think, is going to be very, very difficult. One of the experimental strategies I suggested in my book, I think there's quite a few, more than half a dozen, I think it's eight or seven or eight. At the end of the book, I talk about alternative strategies, and these are partly conjectures. I'm not all saying that will all work. And even the ones that I think I might be skeptical of my working, I say, well, still give it a try. Because we have to experiment. We have to try different things. And one of those things is to create a research group, it could be global, focusing on the critique of Max U. And I suggest make some suggestions about how it might proceed relating to experimental economics and psychology and so on. And that's not been taken up. If that was tried, it might be a good experiment in trying to dislodge. So unless we dislodge Max U, Max U will dominate economics. There's no sign of it moving away. I mean, as Peter Earle said, and I quote him in the book, Peter Earle said, look, people talk about the empirical turn in economics, which is true, which is a good thing, but the empirical term means there's less time to discuss the theory. So we take the theory for granted because we're doing empirical work. And the kind of speculative conceptual work is kind of discouraged by the incentives in academia. I mean, Ronald Coase got the Nobel Prize for two articles, one published in 1937, one published in 1960. You know what the two are. You can look it up if you don't. Those articles got hardly any empirical evidence in. They were almost entirely conceptual. He never got a research grant for the work he did on them. He did do empirical work as well in other articles, but in these two articles, there's no empirical work of much significance. And he gets a Nobel Prize. And I'm not the first person to point out that we're lacking people like Ronald Coase who can dissect the concepts and see what's wrong and adjust them and suggest alternatives. I mean, what he did created the concept of transaction costs, which eventually was called, and we've got all these streams of research of different variations on that theme, the relevance of transaction costs. We know the problems with that, but it's nevertheless a research program which he generated with two articles. We need more people like that. I mean, standard professors at UK universities are asked to fill in a form about their work and say, how many research grants did you get? Okay, You can't get research for grants for thinking about concepts. They all want empirical evidence, which is not a bad thing, but it gets the other stuff gets squeezed out. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, well, we want to thank you, Jeff, for joining us today. Jeff Hodgson done some incredibly important work in institutional economics. His new book, relatively new book, Is There a Future for Heterox Economics? And then also Liberal Solidarity. And also encourage folks to, to read the newest edition of JEI, September 2021, talking about his book. So thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you.